History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 347th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, we are going to the cold north. Are you prepared? Where's Not- your parka? <laughs> I don't see you wearing your parka. Well, thank God it's summer because I hear that it's rather balmy in Minnesota during the summer. <laughs> well, honestly, I have the air cranked down. You probably need your parka. I know it's freezing here inside the <laughs> closet where we're recording. The location that we're going to be bringing to you was suggested by listener Sharon Remical, and that is the Griggs Mansion in St. Paul. A lot of haunts going on there. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Sandy with an I-E, Danielle with two L's, Sarah with no H, Jeremy, Melissa, Carly with an I-E, Elizabeth, Becky with a Y, and welcome back to Tiffany with an I-E. Thank you for joining us in the crew, everybody. And now this moment, Naughty. Above 10th Avenue in Manhattan on the west side lies a train line known as the High Line. Today, it has been transformed into a beautiful park, but the history behind this rail line led this lane into being nicknamed Death Avenue. There was a need in the city for a freight train to carry goods to and from the warehouses and factories on the west side. There was just one problem. This is Manhattan, so it was incredibly busy and crowded. Running a train through the cross streets, traffic, and pedestrians would not be a good idea. But that didn't stop the New York Central Freight Line. They built rail lines down the middle of 10th and 11th Avenue in 1846. Shortly thereafter, the maiming and deaths began. To try to help the situation, the West Side Cowboys were born. These men would ride on horseback, waving red flags and lanterns in front of the trains to warn people that the train was coming. It was a dangerous job and not as effective as it was hoped it would be. By 1908, well over 430 people had been killed by the trains. Some tracks were moved underground and eventually this set of tracks was moved above the street and named the High Line. The last train ran here in 1980. We can only imagine that witnessing a cowboy riding down the middle of 10th Avenue in Manhattan, waving a flag and screaming, the train, the train, while a locomotive rumbled behind him certainly was odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. In the month of July, on the 2nd in 2001, the planet started observing World UFO Day. 
UFO stands for Unidentified Flying Object, and this particular day was founded by UFO hunter Hackton Actigan. The day is meant to help spread awareness that there may be life in existence on other planets. The hope has been that enough pressure will get international governments to come clean about what they have in their UFO files. People celebrate the day by hosting watch parties where people spend hours watching the skies for weird anomalies. The date was picked to commemorate the rumored crash of a UFO in Roswell, New Mexico on July 2, 1947. Some people choose to observe World UFO Day on June 24th instead because this is when the first ever official report of a UFO in the United States was made by aviator Kenneth Arnold. Either way, make sure next year you have your lunar cocktails ready and your bags packed because who won't be ready for a trip off this planet as long as there are no anal probes involved. The Griggs Mansion in St. Paul, Minnesota, was originally built for wealthy merchant Chauncey Griggs in the 1880s. This house stands on a street full of historic homes, and although it is quite beautiful, it has been through several hands. No one knows why it's changed hands so many times, but it seems as though no one managed to live there for more than a couple of years, save for an art school that took up residence for 25 years. Could that be why this home is rumored to be one of the most haunted houses in the state? Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Griggs Mansion. Paul is one of Minnesota's biggest cities and has a strategic position along a deep bend of the Mississippi River. This was originally land inhabited by the Ojibwe and Sioux tribes, and it would be the Sioux tribe that would make a treaty with Lieutenant Zebulon Montgomery Pike in 1805 that would give the U.S. possession of the land. Fort Snelling was built here first, followed by settlers like tavern owner Pierre Perrant, whose Pig's Eye Tavern gave the settlement its name, Pig's Eye Landing. Perrault was one of the settlement's most notorious residents and was a whiskey salesman with a crooked eye and a big troublemaker. Catholic missionary Lucien Galtier arrived in 1841 and built a log cabin that he dedicated to the Apostle Paul, and the town would take on the name St. Paul. This town would become the capital city for the Minnesota Territory, which officially became a state in 1858. The Northern Pacific Railway helped the city to grow, and soon St. Paul was the gateway to the Pacific Northwest. As the Depression took root in the 1920s, gangsters made St. Paul their safe haven. St. Paul continued to grow and is the second largest city in the state. Chauncey Griggs arrived in the city in 1856 and would build his mansion here in 1883. Chauncey Wright Griggs was born in Connecticut in 1832 to a family that was known as Good New England Stock. It is written of the Griggs, in whose tomb scandals never slept. By the age of 14, Griggs was already working as a clerk in an office while he continued his education. He decided to go into teaching initially, but found it boring and decided to move to Detroit and go to business college. He found work as a clerk in a bank there after graduating and was soon talking about business pursuits with some of the clients. The furnishing business is where he started his mercantile pursuits, but by 1856, he decided pursuits further west would be more prosperous, and he was right. Griggs was only 22 years old at this time, and he set up a general store in St. Paul. He knew that railroads would also be needed, so he set his sights on promoting the building of the railroads as a contractor and was eventually a coal and lumber merchant. 
Through all this, Chauncey had a girl back home in Connecticut, Martha Gallup, and he brought her out to St. Paul and married her in 1859. They would go on to have five children. Griggs and Martha had just set up home when the Civil War broke out, and he joined the 3rd Minnesota Infantry, where he was soon promoted to captain. He fought in Nashville and helped General Grant with his pursuits in Vicksburg. In 1863, he became ill and had to resign from his post. He recovered and not only kept up his business pursuits, but entered politics, serving first for two years in the state legislature and then seven years in the Minnesota Senate. The Griggs had amassed a small fortune and decided to build a grand mansion next to Griggs' business partner, Addison Foster, on Summit Avenue at number 476. Eventually, Summit Avenue would be filled with Victorian mansions, and today, Kelly, it is the longest stretch of Victorian-era homes in the United States. I want to go there. I know. It's like the only reason (laughs) why I want to go to St. Paul. Oh, come on now. (laughs) This is four and a half miles of these Victorian homes, and of the 440 original homes that were built there, 373 of them still stand. My goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just, it looks like it's got to be an incredible street. I love Victorian homes. Now, an interesting little fun fact about this street, Frank Lloyd Wright called the street the, quote, worst collection of architecture in the world. Oh, my goodness. So I don't know if it just didn't meet with his, how he was a little bit different with his architecture. Right, right. He he was a little bit more eclectic and kind of did what he felt. Yeah, but <laughs> the homes that I've seen on this stretch look very, very neat. And the Griggs Mansion looks really cool, too. So I don't know what he was talking about. I don't think he liked the old stuff. Well, each to his own. Yes. <laughs> but I love Victorian, so. Me, too. I like Frank Lloyd Wright, too, so I guess I'm torn. The four-story Griggs Mansion was designed in the Richardsonian Romanesque style by architect Clarence Johnston, one of Minnesota's most prolific architects. The mansion was constructed from Bayfield Brownstone, which is found in Wisconsin along the Lake Superior coast and is a quartz sandstone. There are these wonderful turret-like parts of the structure and arched windows. The property included a carriage house and cost 47000 to build and was completed in 1885. There were 24 rooms, and all floors had high ceilings, causing people to describe the rooms as cavernous. The interior also had beautiful wood-paneled walls and stained glass windows. The Griggs didn't live in this house for very long. After four years, the family decided to relocate to the West Coast. They just missed out on the streetcars finally arriving just south of Summit Avenue, granting access to downtown more easily. I just want to wind back to the fact that this was made from Bayfield Brownstone. It was one of the few homes that was made from that, and this is particular just to that area. And I hadn't really thought about it when I was researching this, but we had someone, I can't remember who, it might have been Stephen, who asked in the Spooktacular crew, why does it seem like limestone structures have so many hauntings inside of them? What is it about limestone? It was Stephen. And I actually picked up a book a number of years ago at the Haunted America conference. There was a guy that I don't know if he was a scientist or not, but he looked at limestone from that kind of scientific angle to try to figure it out. I need to pull that book out and really do some research with it and share it with the listeners. But one of the things that I do remember is that limestone is full of quartz. And supposedly quartz is supposed to be one of these crystals that's really good energetically. You know, it's supposed to pull in energy energy from it. Exactly. And now we're seeing that this is made from quartz sandstone. So I wonder if it has the same effect as limestone for absorbing energy and then reflecting that back, possibly considering that this is thought to be one of the most haunted mansions in the area. Could be. So just an interesting little thing I was thinking about there when I was reading that this is made from quartz sandstone. Where's the rabbit hole? 
Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. All right, so down into the rabbit hole I go. And this is a book that I picked up from Timothy Yo, and that's Y-O-H-E, and it's called Limestone and Its Paranormal Properties, A Comprehensive Approach to the Possibilities. And one of the things that he points out is that there's this magnetotactic bacteria that is found in limestone. And he asks, what exactly are these magnetotactic bacteria and why would they have anything to do with the paranormal? Magnetosomes, or magnetofossils, when found in the sedimentary record, are submicron crystals of magnetite, which is iron and oxygen, or greygite, which is iron and sulfur, that grow intercellularly, forming chains within magnetotactic bacteria to assist them in navigation within aquatic environments. They are important in earth science because they have ideal sizes for recording stable paleomagnetic signals. Translation for this, these bacteria incorporate iron into their bodies to travel through water using electromagnetic fields as guides. MTB, which is the short abbreviation for them, make up a huge part of our oceans and lakes throughout the world. While alive, they are responsible for stable magnetic iron compositions in sediment layers. While dead, they contribute strongly to a rock's magnetic capabilities, especially limestone. Biogenic magnetite formed by magnetotactic bacteria and or other magnetite precipitating organisms is responsible for much of the stable magnetic remnants in many marine sediments and sedimentary rocks. The ability of sediment to record accurately the geomagnetic field depends on the constant influx of suitable magnetic carriers. The translation for this is the functions of this bacteria are largely responsible for limestone's ability to record electromagnetic fields. The strength of these fields is dependent on the concentration of MTB in the sediments. This is very important in understanding how much energy is available for spirits to extract from a limestone environment. Within this book, Timothy also talks about the stone tape theory, which we've talked about on here many times. This was a theory that was first proposed by parapsychologist Thomas Charles Lethbridge. And he said that moist rocks like granite have an inherent ability to absorb and release electrical mental impressions, such as those emitted during traumatic or very emotional events. In a real-world scenario, if someone were to be murdered, say, within a stone castle parapet, then the psychic energies released from this very heated and deadly confrontation would absorb into the walls like a sponge and remain stored within its geological structure. The energies could then be replayed back under certain conditions. And it's called stone tape theory because they associate it kind of like with tape recordings. He further asserts that ghosts are simply recordings that play over and over again. Timothy says the idea that certain stones and minerals have an ability to absorb emotional energies was by no means a revolutionary concept in the 1960s. In fact, this phenomenon has persisted since the beginning of humanity. And he said one person that had a theory about this was a poet named Robinson Jeffers, who was very passionate about the environment and interwove many of his observations within his works. And in his poetry, he alludes to the distinct possibility that granite possesses some sort of energy absorbing ability. And he learned about this phenomenon when he was studying masonry and he eventually built the Tor House entirely from granite rock. And Timothy describes limestone, saying that it's obviously abundant all over the earth. It's mostly it's the calcification of marine life, namely coral and any type of sea creature that has a shell. And water plays a huge role in its formation because limestone is created in two ways. In its usual formation, it's a sedimentary rock whose composition is a compilation of the fecal matter, algae, shells, and coral who have died within the oceans. All of this material settles to the bottom, it bonds together, and solidifies into a white rock. During the process of settling, the sedimentary layer absorbs other materials present in the water, namely iron particles and crystal fragments. As these layers build up, they become compressed 
together, eventually taking on its rock-like nature. The other way limestone is formed is chemically. In this case, water carries calcium carbonate particles to another location and deposits them. During this process as well, there are other organic materials brought along in the water. Some of these are iron sulfides and traces of other magnetic minerals. Although every site is different from another, the end result is the same as the ocean manor, the formation of limestone rock. The difference would be that the formations created by water flow, they tend to exist in underground caves. When it comes to haunted locations, it's believed that this combination of water and limestone is what causes an electromagnetic field to be produced, and this could increase spiritual activity. There are other characteristics of limestone that make it stand out from other minerals. As I mentioned, it has quartz in it, then there's magnetite or granite. And as we just heard the theory from that poet, he believes that granite has some kind of ability to absorb energy. And then magnetite, magnetic, it just automatically makes you think that it would pull stuff. So it seems to me like limestone has three parts of it that could actually absorb energy. And that's what Timothy says. These three things may give this rock its unique paranormal attributes. The majority of rocks are considered to be aggregates, meaning they are composed of more than one mineral. Limestone is a general exception to this rule in that its core composition is the mineral calcite. Calcite is an interesting mineral because it makes up a significant portion of the Earth's crust. It also serves as one of the largest carbon repositories on our planet. These carbon repositories have formed from the bodies of sea life that once was living. Calcite then becomes the graveyard for aquatic life and in turn plays an important role in the paranormal puzzle, very much like human graveyards. So this is a really fascinating book. Hopefully that gives you all a little bit of an idea of why limestone seems to have more paranormal activity connected to it. There's more to it clearly, but that's just a general understanding. All right, let's get back out of this rabbit hole. In 1910, the house was heavily damaged in a fire that nearly gutted the entire mansion. A New York interior decorating company restored the house and updated it for around $6,000. Roger B. Shepard bought this house, and when he died, his family donated the house to the St. Paul Gallery and School of Art. This was in 1939. At this time, the front dormer was replaced by a skylight to bring more light into the painting studio. The school remained at this location for 25 years until a new center was built. Carl Wesch was a publisher of occult books under Llewellyn Publications, and he owned the house throughout the 1960s. Llewellyn was his middle name, so that's where he got the name for the publications. He is considered the father of the New Age and grew up with a spiritualist grandfather that heavily influenced him. So anybody who's in the New Age books or astrological books, that kind of thing, they know Llewellyn Publishing. And so this is the guy who founded it, published a bunch of those books, and he is living in this home through the 1960s. For a time, the house was broken into apartments, and today it's a private residence. So it's not something that you can tour. It's not a museum, anything like that. We're not sure how many people actually own this home. When I went back and looked through the records, it was hard to figure out even like Roger B. Shepard. All they say is that his family donated it to the art school. So I'm like, okay, well, he must have owned it at some point. I don't know when he owned it. It had to have been before 1939, and I don't know how long he owned it. But this house really seems to have been like a hot potato, as so many people have described it with families spending a lot of money hiring staff and buying furnishings and then moving out very quickly. So it's like they were getting themselves established, and then within a year or so, they were out. Too much going on. Makes you wonder. (laughs) Makes you wonder. There are reports of the mansion having at least six distinct spirits roaming its rooms. Sharon had written us about Griggs Mansion. Have you ever done a podcast on the Griggs Mansion in St. Paul, Minnesota? It's considered to be the most haunted house in St. Paul, possibly even in Minnesota. 
The reason I'm asking is that in 1963, I think, I spent the summer working as a Jill of all trades for the summer, my first real job. I did clerical work, cleanup work, and whatever needed to be done. That was the last year that the St. Paul Art Center was there. After that, the mansion was bought by Carl L. Wesk, who is a publisher of occult books and the founder of Llewellyn Publishing, which publishes Fate magazine. He was there for a couple of years. The home has an extensive history of hauntings, and there's about seven or eight spirits inhabiting it. I experienced several haunted things during that summer. I've always been sensitive to the paranormal. Remember playing in cemeteries? So in the earlier part of the email, she had shared that she loved to play in cemeteries when she was a kid. (laughs) That's awesome. So I didn't allow it to affect me too much. Also at this time, I had no clue about the reputation of the home. Going forward into the early 80s, I found a book called The Haunted Heartland, which has the Griggs Mansion in it. Imagine my shock when I found out about its reputation. It also explains some of the strange things I encountered while I was there that summer. Now, Sharon didn't share what those strange things were. When you guys write in, please let us know what those are, because I know the listeners would love to know. Is it anything like what we're about to share that other people experienced? Certainly. We love hearing listener stories. Now, clearly it was some weird stuff, but she didn't know that the house was haunted, which to me makes it more believable. Yeah, definitely more authentic. Yeah, so she wasn't already predisposed to believe that something was going to be going on. And so later on, she's like, oh, well, maybe it really was something. Maybe she had talked herself into believing it was just her imagination. Well, it's really easy to do that also. At one point, Carl West had asked a university student to watch his house while he was away in February of 1965. On an evening during that time, a neighbor made a frantic call to the police department claiming that he could hear cries coming from inside the Griggs mansion next door. Patrolman Jerry Dolan and his partner were sent out to investigate. When they arrived at the house, it was dark and quiet. They checked the front door and found it locked, so they went around to the back door. It was unlocked, and they pushed it open. As they entered the house, they swept the room with their flashlights and found a disheveled young man crouching in a corner, overcome with fear. He was shivering uncontrollably. Then all of a sudden, they heard a howling coming from somewhere in the house. The officers did a quick search of the house, but found no one else there. Officer Dolan claimed that his hair stood on end the whole time. They wrapped the young man in blankets and loaded him in their patrol car. They asked him what happened, and he cried out, I have seen death. They took him to the hospital where a doctor found that he had nothing physically wrong with him, but that he was in a state of deep shock. Dang. (laughs) I don't know what he saw. There were no more details about that, but clearly it was something that terrified him. Wow. And again, remember, this is a home that people have just fled from. Exactly. And yet the art school was able to stay there for 25 years. So I don't know. Well, I mean, they were probably there during certain hours and didn't stay late. And maybe when they had multiple people in the vicinity, in the rooms, it just didn't. And we will find out that they actually did have some experiences. Nick Waltman wrote in the Twin Cities Pioneer Press in 2016 about three reporters from the Pioneer Press who tried to stay overnight at the Griggs Mansion back in 1969. They were invited by the house's then-owner, a local publisher of books on the paranormal named Carl West, to investigate rumors that it was inhabited by ghosts. But they fled before dawn after hearing what sounded like footsteps approaching their room. We all agreed on one thing, they wrote. There was no prize on earth that could get us to spend a single night alone in that great stone house. The article also shares the owner at the time, Carl West's, experiences. Mr. West had the home renovated, which included replacing the windows. After that, one window kept opening by itself. 
Wesk finally got frustrated and nailed the window shut. The next morning, he found the window open again. He had told Waltman that he was in the library when he saw a man standing in the doorway and explained, Neither of us moved. There was no sound. We just kept standing there, face to face. He wore a dark suit. His face was long and thin. His hair was bushy and white. He seemed to have an expression of surprise when he saw me. And then the man just faded away. Once when he was on the back staircase, he felt himself being picked up and tossed in the air. This man was seen by many people in the house. Another person who saw him was Dr. Delmar Kolb. In the early 1950s, Dr. Kolb joined the art school staff and he needed a place to stay, so the school allowed him to move into an apartment down in the basement. One night he awoke with a start when he felt two cold fingers pressed to his forehead. He had broken into a cold sweat, too. Kolb flipped on the light and saw a blue flash or streak that disappeared. Two nights later, he was startled awake once again and could make out a figure at the end of his bed. This looked to be a man of average size dressed in a black suit and top hat. We're not sure if there was a light on somewhere that enabled him to see this, but we wouldn't be surprised since he had that scary experience two nights before, because in the dark, it'd be kind of hard to tell what color. I would imagine. And he did describe the man to have white hair as well. At first, the teacher thought that maybe this was someone who'd broken into the house, but when it turned and walked into the brick wall, he knew he had just seen a ghost. That kind of makes you <laughs> pretty positive that something strange yeah, is going on there. Definitely gives you that X of yeah definitiveness. This was not the only report of this man in a suit and hat. Several people claimed to have seen him. We went back and found the 1969 article from the Pioneer Press that the reporters wrote relaying their experiences in the house. They had brought a psychic medium named Roma Harris with them. He said, There has been much sorrow here, a lot of suffering. Things have been done that shouldn't have happened. There was a general or something here. I see a blue uniform with lots of gold on it. Roma also felt the passing of the maid at the stairs and said, Someone was pushed and fell here. The police were called. The person was permanently injured. But it was an accident. He continued, There is so much activity here, so many people who have lived here. The house has a heaviness about it, like a ball and chain. He left and the reporter stayed. Throughout the night, the men felt a sense of dread, especially near the staircase. Around 1.20 a.m., there were five distinct thumps, like heavy footsteps, and then silence. At 3.35 a.m., the men heard a creaking sound that was not like the house settling, but rather sounded like soft footsteps. These were on the stairs. They stopped after a minute. One reporter ran over to the stairs and saw no one. At 3.45 a.m., there was some squeaking sounds on the stairs as though someone were walking down or up the stairs. They packed up at 4 a.m. and decided they would never return again. And as you heard earlier, they said there was nothing that could get them to stay alone in that house. And what's interesting is basically all they were hearing were footsteps on the stairs, which compared to what these other people have experienced is nothing. Right. <laughs> and they didn't want to go back. I'd be running over there going, okay, who's with us? Yeah, come on up and join us. Talk <laughs> into our little contraption here. Exactly. One of the other specters thought to be in the house might be Chauncey Griggs himself, which is odd since he didn't live in the house very long and he didn't die here. As we just shared from the Pioneer Press article, Roma saw a man in a blue uniform. Many people believe that this was Griggs in his officer uniform. There was a gardener employed here at some point named Charles Wade. He was very dedicated to his work and could be intense. Wade often used some of the books in the library to help him in his gardening efforts. When he died, people believed his spirit returned to the house and now occasionally flips through the books in the library, 
trying to continue his work on some unfinished business. There are also claims of a teenage girl named Amy being in the house. No one knows at what point she lived here, but she had played the piano in the mansion, and she may be doing that still in ghostly form. So I don't know if people who've moved in and had a piano all of a sudden had it playing on its own. Yeah, I was wondering if they heard somebody tinkling the ivories. Something like that. Roma had claimed to feel this girl as well. Three students moved into the basement apartment, and one of them saw an apparition too, only this one was not a man in a black suit. This was the head of a child floating above his bed. Oh, good grief. So I don't know if this was a child spirit that could only partially manifest or what that was about. Many students at the school claimed to feel as though someone were watching them or hovering behind them, especially when they were like painting or something. They felt like maybe somebody was appreciating their art. Well, that's a good feeling. The thing that's very (laughs) interesting is you have this Roma psychic talking about all this pain and suffering and people dying in this house, but there's not a whole lot of stories going with that. And then I'm like, why is there a head of a child just floating around? What is that signifying? (laughs) No idea. One of the more well-known spirits here is said to belong to the maid that the medium Roma had claimed he felt at the stairs. But the story about her doesn't seem to include an accident on the stairs, but rather a suicide. She had a romance that didn't end well, and she went into a depression. This was in 1915, and she made the horrible decision to hang herself off the fourth floor landing of the stairs. Shortly thereafter, she started appearing to people in the house. Two of these people were a servant and a butler in the fourth floor hallway. Many people have a feeling of foreboding when they climb the stairs, especially near the fourth floor. Could this be one of the entities that the reporters heard during their investigation? Other experiences that have been reported are people being shaken in their beds, shadowy apparitions, rasping coughs from empty rooms, light bulbs shattering, bags falling off shelves and jumping across the floor, and the feeling of something unseen walking by them. With all these stories, it's hard not to believe that something strange is going on inside the mansion. Is the Griggs Mansion haunted? That That is for you to decide. decide. Well, definitely a street we need to check out. And I believe one of the other homes on here, if it's not there, it's in St. Paul. When I went to look for the Greeks mansion, this one kept popping up. And I believe it's his great grandson or somebody. It's like a great grandchild related in some way, either by marriage or something. They do have a home that is a museum now. And you can go visit that. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. This one is too, but it's a private residence. Right. But the other one had all kinds of pictures on the inside. And if the inside of the Griggs Mansion looks anything like this place, it's gorgeous. You know, I love to describe to you what you can see inside these buildings. What does the carved wood look like? The mantelpieces, all that stuff. Nothing. Could not find a thing. And even though this is on the Register of Historic Places, they didn't have any paperwork on it. So I'm like, okay, there's not a whole lot to help describe it to people. Right. So I encourage you guys to check out the other Griggs Mansion that's here, and it'll probably give you an idea of what the inside of this one looked like. Very similar. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com, and if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I heard over on Instagram from Goddess X Vibes. She said, I wanted to share this photo with you guys. My grandma bought this house a few years back and took the photo. It is a cabin and was previously owned by the man who built it. As far as we could find out, he died of natural causes. However, if you look in the mirror, it looks to me as though there's a figure that appears to be wearing a black suit and kind of hanging near the ceiling fan. 
Could it be the man that lived there or something else? I guess that's for you to decide. What I'll do is go ahead and put this picture up in the show notes so that people can look for themselves. I'll probably put it over in the Spooktacular crew too, so you guys can check it out, see what you think. When I looked at it, number one, a little bit of synchronicity, we had a ghost in the Griggs Mansion who's wearing a black suit and tie. This ghost apparently is wearing a black suit and tie. And when I looked in the mirror, I definitely saw what looked like uh, this person. So I said, very interesting. Mirrors are like windows, so hard to gauge, but it sure looks like a man wearing a suit with black tie, which I also find interesting. I'm not much of one for orbs, but there are two orbs in this picture. Up near the ceiling fan is a weird shaped one. So it's not a perfect circle. It's almost kind of oval or just kind of odd looking. Looking at it in relation to the mirror, it's kind of up where the man appears to be. So I had wondered the lower orb, sure, that could be dust or something else, a bug, sun coming in, something like that, something bouncing off of a flash. But that one, I was like, isn't it interesting that the orb is up near the ceiling fan and this guy in the mirror looks like he's up near the ceiling fan? Are we seeing his orb and then he's reflecting into the mirror as an apparition? Which if that is really what's happening, oh my God, how cool is that? Yeah, very cool. <laughs> He can't manifest like right there, but in the mirror he is manifesting. Right. So I'll put the picture up, see what you guys think. It's interesting. You thought maybe you saw a couple of heads down towards the bottom of the mirror. Yeah, I kind of felt like there were maybe a couple of kids down standing about, I don't know, waist height, I believe it was. And I had asked the listener who shared this with me, your grandmother was taking the picture. Was she standing in front of the mirror? So maybe we're seeing her reflecting in the mirror. It's a flash flash. reflecting back. And she said she was over in the corner, so she definitely wasn't. You couldn't see her in the mirror. So, who knows? We'll let the listeners decide. Certainly. We're getting ready to do our Flash Fiction Contest. If you're in the Spooktacular crew, we'll have the rules up there in the announcements. And we'd love to have you guys compete for the prizes. They're always great. There's medals involved and some logo gear. And also remember to get in your true ghost experiences that you've had for our Halloween episode. And we're not only going to have, obviously, our Halloween special that we do every year, but this year is going to be a lot different because of COVID. (laughs) We just heard yesterday that Universal in California and here in Orlando are not going to be doing their Halloween Horror Nights. Breaks my heart. And I have a feeling we're not going to have trick-or-treaters and such. So we will be hosting a virtual party on Zoom for the Spooktacular crew. So we'll probably do it later on in the evening so that everybody's whatever festivities maybe you get to partake in are (laughs) over and uh, we'll just hang out and maybe tell some ghost stories, eat some candy in front of each other, whatever. Try to make each other feel better that our Halloween has been ruined by the Grinch COVID. Mm, Circus peanuts. (laughs) It's about the, yeah, I mean, it is like getting only circus peanuts in your treat bag. (laughs) So make sure you guys join up with the Spooktacular crew because we'll have all the details about that in there. So, And speaking of candy, you have a new candy that you've been enjoying. Oh, my God. M&M's <laughs> now has fudge brownie in the middle of them. <laughs> and it really does taste like a brownie in the middle. It's chewy, just like a brownie. And oh, my God, I'm going to have to run more. Some chocolatey goodness. <laughs> I think I'm going to join the Yes Fit Run for Shark Week. That'll be perfect. I'll just pretend like a shark. Jaws is chasing me down the street <laughs> and I'll be able to eat as many M&Ms as I want. Or you could pretend it's a gator, like the one that was cruising down the, the neighborhood <gasps> oh the other God. day. Yes, our neighbors had a, it was one of their security cameras that caught it, right? There were a few. Yeah, the ring doorbell cameras caught it cruising across their driveway and it had to be a good, 
I'd say five and a half, six feet easily. And, and it was he, only three legged. Yeah, he was missing Poor an arm. Guy. Yeah, one of his front arms was gone, but he was yeah. getting around just fine. He sat for a while in front of somebody's front door. Right, curled up in their foyer. Can you imagine <laughs> opening your front door? I am glad. People probably are not aware of this, and I don't know that it's this way in all Florida homes, but in our neighborhood, all of our doors open outward because of hurricanes so that right. they don't blow in. And boy, am I glad, because if you have an alligator sitting out there, at least you'd push against something before the door you know, opens. So it's <laughs> exactly. not like, oh, my God. <laughs> and the time that that was being recorded was the same time I was out running with the dogs. Oh, my god! It was gosh. just a block over. Tasty treat. <laughs> no. Well, we want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery Deanna Garrison. You're going to be buried under an obelisk headstone. And Rebecca Pratt Sturgis, you're going to be buried in a chest tomb. Thank you to all the executive producers. It really goes so far to help us make this show happen. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Test, 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 test. Test, 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 And when I hear that, the train, the train. The plane, the plane. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Hacton Ogdagana. Og, Ogdagon? It's an octagon. Hacton Octagon. Octagon. Actigan. Actigan. Okay. Who can mention UFO without mentioning anal probes? Me. Not me. <laughs> Those two go hand in hand. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Oh my gosh. St. <laughs> Paul is one of Minnesota's biggest cities and has a has a You got strategic from that, right? No. Oh. I didn't. I'll redo Sorry. it. This was originally land inhabited by the Ojibwe and Sioux tribes. <laughs> tribes. <laughs> Sorry. God, this is only the second sentence.